Well, hello and welcome to the next session of our Sabbath School commentary. We are up to lesson number eight this week with explaining God and the covenant. Last week, I don't know if you got to hear the uh, commentary that was put together by Matt Parra, but I want to say that I was thoroughly blessed and it is a great segue into God and the covenant. He was talking about the illimitable forgiveness of God which is obviously a great platform when we begin talking about our covenant with God or God and his covenant with his people. Because let's face it, we've all failed. We've all fallen short of God's glory, as it says in the book of Romans, chapter 3, verse 23, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so we are all in need of forgiveness. And we are just so grateful to have a God who is so loving and willing to forgive us and reestablish a covenant with us who have so easily and so regularly broken that covenant. So with that in mind, I think we should take a look at the memory text for this week's lesson found in the book of Nehemiah chapter 9 and verse 38. And it says, and because of all this, we make a sure covenant and write it. Our leaders, our Levites and our priests seal it. And the reason why this is such a great place for us to start our study into God and the covenant with this week's lesson is because The first phrase, and because of all this, really contextualizes what it is that we're trying to establish with the covenant. So what was it when they say, because of all this, that they're referring to? Well, if we take a couple of verses before and start reading in verse 36 of Nehemiah chapter 9, it says, Here we are, servants today, and the land that you gave to our fathers to eat its fruit and its bounty. Here we are, servants in it. And it yields much increase to the kings who you have set over us because of our sins. And they have dominion over our bodies and our cattle at their pleasure. And we are in great distress. And it's so interesting to me that uh, they are making this covenant in the midst of their distress. They determine that right now in this period, when we are under oppression as a nation because of our own sins... We are forced into servitude because of the kings that God has set over us. We are determined to uphold the covenant with which we have previously rebelled. Now, I'm not sure about you, but when I think of covenants, I get a little bit bewildered because I'm not actually sure what they are and when they're used and by who and for what purpose. So I think it's important for us to sort of give us a little bit of a background as to what actually is a covenant and then from that platform discover what it is that these Israelites are covenanting to do and to be. And the simplest way for me to describe what a covenant is, is essentially an agreement or a contract between two parties that this is how things are going to be done or this is what's going to transpire if those things are not done. And biblically speaking, covenants were made at turning points. And we're going to get into a little bit more detail as to those points in Israel's history in Monday's lesson. But for the sake of emphasizing a covenantal agreement and what are the implications of such, in my mind, when I think of a covenant that we make in modern day society, apart from like the standardized business contracts and things of that nature, I think of a marriage relationship, a marriage covenant, where two people sign the document, as we see is done here in this book of Nehemiah, 
and they sign a document that says that we are going to commit ourselves to this one person for the rest of our lives and we are going to commit in a certain fashion to the extent that we will not have any other uh, extramarital relations with anyone else. And the second thing that I wanted to highlight, which is relevant to the memory text, is the fact that this particular covenant that people make is ratified by the leaders and by the Levites and by the priests, and they all seal it, just as when we make a marriage covenant and it is sealed and signed by the pastor and the participants in the covenant, the husband and the wife, and then on top of that, it's ratified by witnesses or people that can confirm that these two people on this day did indeed make this covenant. But the difference between a covenant between two parties in, say, a marriage context or in a business context is that most of the time, these between two people parties are aiming to establish benefit to both of those said parties. Whereas in a covenant with God, it's really only benefiting one party. You see, God doesn't actually need anything from us. And oftentimes we fall short of the covenant as we've seen throughout this quarter's lessons. And it's kind of well articulated in the book of Hosea, where we find this story of a prophet who is called to marry a prostitute and suffer the consequences of someone that habitually breaks the covenant that they have committed to and the heart of her husband in the process. And it gives us a bit of an insight into this relentless forgiveness of God when we are just so predisposed to breaking the covenant that we have made with him. And I think back to when the Israelites are at the foot of Mount Sinai and they have the law articulated to them and they say to Moses, everything that the Lord has said we will do with just the utmost of ignorant self-confidence. Which brings me to my next point. I mean, obviously, we're all somehow aware of the fact that we shouldn't enter into a covenant relationship or marriage lightly, because we're aware that it has huge implications for the rest of our lives. And similarly, we shouldn't be making covenants with God lightly. When we make a covenant with God, we should take it seriously as though it has implications for the rest of our lives, similar to a marriage covenant, because it has implications for our eternal life, not just our temporal life here on earth. So, all right, let's move on to Sunday's lesson and the idea of the covenant. And what Sunday's lesson is attempting to establish is essentially that this covenant that was made was one that was planted right in the midst of a time in Israel's history when it would have been very difficult to uphold principles as established in the laws of Moses. So I find it really encouraging that these guys determine that they're going to uphold integrity, they're going to uphold the laws of Moses, and we'll get into what those looked like in the next coming day's lessons. But just the fact that they were prepared to covenant in the midst of a time when it was difficult to do so is an admonition to me and to you when it comes to times where we face difficulty and it's hard to uphold the principles that we have 
been striving to apply to our lives. And in my mind, it's reminiscent of Daniel when he is on his way to Babylon and he's recognizing that this is going to be probably the most difficult experience of his life. And perhaps he was thinking of the story of Joseph in a similar um, situation on his way to slavery, it looked like. And he is said to have purposed in his heart in Daniel chapter 1 and verse 8 that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. And I guess you could be justified in questioning why he chose the portion of the king's meat and the wine. These kind of seem like pretty small things, and maybe he could have just purposed in his heart to, you know, keep the Sabbath or something big. But this is indicative, I think, of a really solid principle when it comes to making covenants with God. You see, we can't be just making covenants on those big principles or those perhaps more obvious principles if we're not prepared to uphold those small ones. And it lines up perfectly with what Jesus says when he says that if we are faithful in that which is least, we will be faithful also in that which is much. And we can see that certainly with the story and history of Daniel. The point that we're trying to make is simply that it is so much more beneficial to determine in your heart that you are going to uphold a certain principle when the time comes than it is to attempt to try and uphold that principle just on a whim when temptation rises. And I can vouch for that. It is so much easier for me to maintain my attempted plant-based uh, healthy lifestyle when I purpose in my heart that I'm not going to eat certain kinds of foods. So much more difficult when I come to the potluck and there is a smorgasbord of uh, delicacies that grab your attention and it's hard to maintain that integrity if you haven't already purposed in your heart. And I think another point that's well highlighted from this story in Nehemiah is that it often is better to have more than one person ratifying the covenant at one time. So I find it a lot easier when my wife is there to keep me accountable to the things that I've committed to than it is to attempt to do it on my own. So accountability is a huge part of maintaining covenant. And we can see that in the story of Nehemiah where there was a multitude of people that witnessed and ratified the covenant that was made on the day. So moving along to Monday's lesson, where the lesson takes the time to establish the different attempts of God to establish covenant with faulty and frail humans. We find the first covenant with Adam in Genesis chapter 1 through to 3, the second covenant with Noah in Genesis 6 through to 9, the third covenant with Abraham, the fourth with Moses and the Israelites, the fifth one with Phineas, the sixth one with David, and then the seventh one, which is termed the New Covenant. And this has a number of potential applications to us as Christians in the sense that the Bible says in Proverbs 24 and verse 16, For the righteous falls seven times and rises again, but the wicked stumble in times of calamity. And the implication here in connecting it with our current story is that there is seven different covenants that God has made with humanity and the righteous man continues to fall. Obviously, it's important to note that the righteousness that this righteous man has comes from God and the covenant with which he is establishing. Because obviously, the man has demonstrated that he is not righteous in the fact that he has fallen seven times. And so the righteous needs to come from a source somewhere outside of himself. So in a collective sense or in a global sense, God has established the covenant seven times just as he needs to establish the covenant 
perfectly with faulty humans on an individual level seven times if that's what it takes. The uh, obvious uh, correlation between the number seven being a representation of completion. And obviously God promises to do the work um, that is necessary to make us righteous as it is promised in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6 that says, being confident of this very thing that he which has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And following on from that point, Monday's lesson highlighted the four essential parts of the everlasting covenant that God makes with humanity in his attempt at salvation for them. And there are four major parts, sanctification, reconciliation, mission, and justification. And in all of those, you will read, as, as we'll highlight in just a moment, there is an element of ownership that is taken on by God. For, and it's all found in Jeremiah chapter 31 and, and, and verse 33 and 34. And it says that, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. And it says, I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. Now, this is very much positioning humanity in a posture of receiving and God in a posture of giving. And it's so important that we recognize this, that salvation is God's work. He is the one that writes the law into our hearts and into our minds. He is the one that is our God and he's the one that makes us his people. And he's the one that teaches us himself so that we don't have to go to each other asking who uh, can teach us to know the Lord because for the least to the greatest, all will know him. And then finally, in the justification factor, that he will be the one that forgives sin and he will be the one that remembers iniquity no more. All of this is putting God in a position of responsibility and he puts himself in that position. Um, and I guess that that's the way it needs to be, given how often uh, we fail and fall. And even the Bible, talking about righteous people, as we talked about before in Proverbs, says that the righteous man falls seven times. Um, and that's just expected, that the righteous man falls so in one sense, it kind of takes a little bit of the stress out of salvation for us as humans in that it's not dependent upon our integrity or our adherence to principle, but it's more so dependent upon God and his love and his intention to save us as a merciful, benevolent God. But something else in that verse that we haven't touched on as yet, which is absolutely imperative, is that the righteous man gets back up every time he falls, because if he didn't, then he wouldn't have been able to fall a second and the third and the fourth and the fifth times because you have to get up to be able to fall and this is something that is really important for us in our Christian journey that when we fall we need to get back up it's that uh, the old adage if you get knocked off the horse get straight back on it kind of a thing and the important thing for us to keep in mind is that the Christian journey will be fraught with many errors and failures on our part but praise God the dependence is upon him and he will bring it to fruition as he's promised in Philippians as we talked about. So our simple responsibility is realistically just getting back up and recommitting to covenant as is stipulated from these verses that we've just read that God you are faithful and we are not and this is what we've seen through the whole the whole story of Nehemiah and the Christian journey essentially is just one big recommitment to the covenant that God has made on our behalf. Now, it's important to clarify at this point in time that when we fall, we're not justified in the fall. We, we don't have any kind of 
reason to fall justifiably and that's something that's often overlooked with a lot of I guess Pentecostal movements that talk about we're not under the law we're under grace and so we don't need to stress about uh, the fact that we falter and fall well the reality is that when we fall we hurt people when we do things wrong other people get damaged or um, we damage ourselves and the reality is that there's no justification for that and on the flip side we can't actually take making the covenant or recommitting to the covenant uh, lightly I mean we've just talked about how um, the the Israelites in this era were taking it very seriously like they spent time in sackcloth and ashes and uh, demonstrating to God their emptiness and their their lack of integrity because they're dirty they're they're covered in filth and I would put it to you that it is our responsibility to take up this covenant on a daily basis in recognition of the times that we've fallen the day before or the times that we've fallen in the hours before our commitment to the covenant and that we should take it to God in not necessarily literal sackcloth and ashes, but we should take it with the sanctity surrounding the commitment to a covenant of such um, huge implications for our eternal destiny. We should take it seriously is the point. We should be coming to God on a daily basis to actually commit ourselves to this covenant that we've broken again and again and again, seven times as it were. And this draws us into our Tuesday's lesson, interestingly enough, talking about the covenantal structure and the lesson platforms this whole discussion on Joshua 24. And without going into too much detail as to the different elements of the structure of a covenant in the Old Testament. Suffice to say, it was something that was taken very seriously, and there was the four parts being uh, the preamble, the historical prologue, the stipulations and the laws, the blessings and the cursings, and then the witnesses, and then special provisions that were made in the book of Deuteronomy. And this is kind of reiterated in the book of Joshua as well. But the most important verses in the whole chapter of Joshua 24 are found in verses 14 and 15. And this is probably the most poignant and the most interesting to me. And it says there in verse 14 and 15, Now therefore, fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now, one thing that's interesting about the way that this verse starts is it talks about fearing the Lord and serving him in sincerity and in truth and putting away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Now, the reason why I think Joshua is pointing this out is because these are the things that are the temptations for the children. I mean, we're very aware that there is a tendency for the fathers to inherit the um the predispositions towards evil that the parents had. And secondarily, it's important to uh, recognize where your weaknesses are so that you can work against them. And this verse does not give any kind of freedom to just abusing the, the covenant with which God is making with his people at this point in time. He says there, serve him in sincerity and in truth and put away the gods. In other words, turn away from the things that once kept you in bondage on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. There is no way that we can serve the Lord without turning away from those things. So it can't just be a matter of, oh, yeah, I'm going to make the covenant today, um, but then uh, go ahead and just live life like as if... Um, 
I haven't made any covenant at all. It's kind of like if I was to go and sign a legal document to say that I'm going to be married and then uh, continue to live my life as though I wasn't married at all the very same day and then the next day say, oh, no, that's okay, I'm going to recommit myself to that marriage vow that I made to you um, yesterday. Um, all of a sudden, the trust has been broken. It's not really like I'm serving that covenant with sincerity and in truth as this verse is articulating. And then Joshua continues into this just this ironic statement, and if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, what kind of a state must people be in when they begin to see serving the Lord as evil? Uh, I guess you could say that that's the state that the Pharisees got to. They reached a place where that which was good appeared evil and that which was evil appeared good in their eyes. And they did some heinous things aside from uh, mentioning what they did to Jesus Christ himself. And so it would have to get to the point where you are not familiar with the covenant and the implications of that covenant for you to be able to start to pervert what is good and what is evil and to so misconstrue truth. But then he goes on to say, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. A verse that would probably be well for us to remind ourselves every single day that we should choose for ourselves this day whom we will serve, whether the gods of the fathers that served on the other side of the river, or the gods of the Amorites, which were in the land that they were now dwelling. In any case, on either side of the river, whether we stay where we are now, or whether we go back to where we've come from, we're going to find gods that we can serve that are not in line with um, God's original plan for us. Then finally, Joshua rounds off the statement with, but as for me and for my house, we will serve the Lord. And the implication here is essentially salvation is on your own back. As the Bible says in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12, Therefore, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. With that said, we have to praise God for godly examples of those that do love and serve God and their household follows after him as well. Now, moving along into Wednesday's lesson, we're asked to read through Nehemiah chapter 10 and verse 30 to 39. Now, I won't go through those verses for the sake of time, but there are four major areas with which the Israelites pledge to uphold as their side of the covenant. Number one, no mixed marriages. Number two, true Sabbath observance. Number three, debt cancellation and sabbatical year observance. And number four, financially supporting the temple. Now, there are obvious reasons as to why they've chosen these four major areas to clarify in their new covenant with God. Uh, given their history and the particular propensities that they had as a group of people um, to extortion and intermingling their marriages and um, falling short of upholding the Sabbath. And these were areas that, that they really needed to hone in on. And I guess perhaps we should take stock of our own situation personally when determining what kind of covenant that we need to make with God and how we can best fulfill that covenant. But there are certainly some lessons that we can draw out uh, for our own lives from these four areas that perhaps we don't really uphold all that much in modern day Christianity. Uh, for example, no mixed marriages. Well, it's pretty straightforward. This is the kind of covenant that one would make with an individual um, for life. And if that person has the potential to draw your attention in any way away from uh, God and uh, true 
service to him uh, towards idolatry of any sense, uh, then it's not a, a, a relationship that's conducive to heaven. Secondly, the idea of true Sabbath observance uh, and not performing any business transactions throughout the Sabbath. Now, this is one that's of particular uh, relevance to us in our modern day era as well, given the laxity with which we as Seventh-day Adventists, well, I find myself in my own life, uh, that we attempt to uphold the Sabbath. It's something that is just so easily um, justified. You know, I can I can do this now just quickly and that way I won't have to think about it over the Sabbath and so it's not something that, um, you know, will distract me from serving God or whatnot. But um, I guess the reality is there perhaps if there is something that could be left until after the Sabbath hours, then realistically we should be able to do so or leave it there um, and keep our attention fixed on the purpose of the Sabbath in its original intent. The third pledge that the Israelites make in this chapter of Nehemiah is that of debt cancellation and sabbatical year observance. Now, these are things that I imagine in their time and in their situation would have been significantly difficult um, when it comes to being short of money and then pledging to not hold people accountable for their debts when it passes a certain date or um, and then secondarily like leaving the ground to just grow on its own for every seventh year is a pretty intense ask when you're on the verge of financial bankruptcy for 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 what it seems uh, from reading the story and it's a bit of a rebuke to me in my own life in the tendencies that I have towards easily remembering the debts that other people have against me and conveniently forgetting the debts that I have um, against other people. Then finally, the lesson talks about financially supporting the temple. And I want to tie this into Thursday's lesson, which focuses focuses in primarily on the temple and the Israelites' practice surrounding the temple. And this is one thing that is often overlooked when we look back on the Israelites and we think of them as having so many uh, you know, shortcomings and, and so many failures, but then when we look at them in the way that they supported the temple and how much they actually sacrificed in towards the service of the temple, you actually begin to realize that they put us to shame when it comes to how much um, uh, you know we actually give back to God and his services. Um, and I obviously need to clarify here that there very well may be some people that give more than the Israelites did back then, but if you calculate it all up, apparently the Israelites were sacrificing a full 25% of their income to the temple and its services, which to me is just a, a number of absolute craziness. I don't see any financial potential survival uh, when you're sacrificing such a huge amount. I mean, maybe if you had a huge amount, but once again, drawing back to the fact that these guys did not have very much. They've sunk everything into building the temple and they've sunk everything into uh, building the walls of the city and, and getting things back up to scratch. Um, and then they're committing to sacrifice as was originally articulated in the Levitical law towards a full 25% of their income, apparently. 
which is just huge and hats off to them. And I think we can all take stock of uh, supporting the temple a whole lot more than we actually do. And I think that this has resonance with the people of the day and their perspective on what the temple represented. And for them, it was practically everything that made them who they are as a people, as, as a nation, as a culture, as a race. And for us, I feel like perhaps we don't give enough emphasis, enough value to God and his service and I guess the mission that he's given to us as a people which is where our identity resides. And there's something to be said about having a temple or having a place of worship that glorifies God in it being organized and orderly and beautified even, as that testifies to the God that we serve and the God that we worship. I think in our day and in our age, we have a tendency to just be complacent, to let the temple and its services survive rather than thrive. And it would do us well, I think, to take stock of how well the church reveals our love for God. And if our church is in disarray, if the building is falling apart, if the lawn is overgrown, does it really demonstrate or reflect effectively our heart for God and his service. Because for some people, this is all they ever see of our Christianity. This is all they ever see of Christ revealed through us as a people. And it comes back to the point that we were making earlier on in the discussion about being faithful in that which is least, and therefore we will be faithful in that which is much. In any case, guys, I want to thank you for listening up to our thoughts from this week's lesson on God and the Covenant. Looking forward to catching up with you guys again in the next session next week. Thanks, guys. Cheers.